0: Good morning Restoration My name is bum young Kim Uh, my wife and I have been attending we actually came to four services before COVID shut down uh, Sunday services So we've been coming um, For the past couple of years and are glad to be a part of restoration. Also, um, I'm thankful for this opportunity to be able to preach this morning Um, I uh, did campus ministry with my wife for 15 years and then we planted a church here in st. Louis for 10 years. We closed that church down back in 2019 and that's when we started attending restoration. So um, I was asked just to preach this morning just to give the leadership a break since they were at the General Assembly this past week. So thankful to bring the word with you this morning. Also I have the priestly garments that are approved for restoration which is a (laughs) button-down untucked (laughs) shirt with jeans Yeah, I don't have white sneakers, though, so maybe if I get invited back, I'll actually invest in white sneakers. But, no, I'm really glad to be here this morning. Um, Rachel Chung is going to come up and do the scripture reading for the passage. And this is going to be from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this follows up with last week's sermon about the conversion of Paul. And this is one of Paul's letters to one of the churches that he started. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rachel. So before we get into this passage, just want to give uh, some background because as we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, this is much further along in chapter 18 of Acts where Paul has started his missionary journeys and actually in the latter part of his second missionary journey, he plants a church in the city of Corinth and the thing that i love about the corinthians is that it's um it reminds me of the pentecostal korean church because they were way into the holy spirit they were way into um, speaking in tongues and miracles and all of that sort of outward expression Of Faith and it got to the point where they were competing with one another about who was more holy who spoke tongues the most Could do the most uh, miracles and so Paul's first letter of Corinthians is trying to correct some of the chaos of all of that So he's saying okay if you're gonna pray in tongues during service Let's have one person do it at a time make sure that there's interpretation and all that kinds of stuff and so as a person who's more familiar and sort of my own heart is towards the pentecostal side of things um that this this uh, church this corinthian church has always i felt a lot of affinity towards them and here in second corinthians paul is needing to write to the church that he started because there's what's called super apostles that are now influencing the church that he planted so after planting this church Paul has gone on to other missionary journeys and he's writing this letter to them uh, about five years later after he has left. And he's basically in the unenviable position of trying to reassert his authority over the church because the Corinthians are following these super apostles that are really flashy leaders that are you know, being funded by the church and might be taking advantage of the church. So Paul is trying to convince them why he really has legitimacy in terms of authority over them. So this passage that we're looking at in chapter 12 is the culmination of his argument or the case for why they should be listening to him r- rather than the super apostles. I mean, j- just imagine if you've ever been in a situation where you are dating someone and all of a sudden they started being attracted or wooed by someone else. And you had the job of trying to convince that person why they should stay with you rather than this other person. That, that's the position that Paul is in, is trying to convince the Corinthians why they should listen to him. And the culmination, sort of the, the pinnacle of his argument is this revelation that he has where he saw heaven, where he was able to see heaven right? But it was such a spectacular experience that a thorn was uh, given in his side to keep him humble. So that's where this passage is coming into where he says something very strange where um, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. So we're going to explore this passage to see how this can be true where um, when Paul is weak that he is strong. So there's been a lot of attention regarding what is the thorn that Paul is uh, given. The passage says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And scholars have really tried to figure out what that was. And really, it's just pure speculation. A lot of people will say, well, You know, Paul was persecuted a lot. He was whipped. He was tortured. He was put in prison. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. Surely that must have had some long-term health effects on him physically. So maybe the thorn in his flesh was uh, something physical, a physical ailment that he had to deal with. And other people are saying, no, maybe the thorn in his flesh was something more emotional. Maybe he struggled with depression. Maybe he struggled with anxiety uh, because he, and he even states in the book of Corinthians that he worries constantly about the churches that he's planted and even these super apostles that are coming in and trying to influence the, the, the uh, church. But we really don't know. And I think I'm actually grateful and thankful that we don't know. Because the point of the scriptures is to invite us into this story as well. Because many of us have thorns in our flesh. Many of us have attacks from Satan trying to plague us. And I think the scriptures are intentionally sort of ambiguous about the nature of this thorn. Because it's meant to invite us and bring our own suffering into the story and whether or not God can address that. And we see this throughout Jesus's ministry, right? Who are, who are the ones that Jesus really interacted with throughout his ministry? We see there are people that had thorns in their flesh. We see people who are not strong, but actually really weak in their faith, that Jesus was attracted to those on the margins, especially in this Jewish culture that talked about purity, that talked about the temple. Only those uh, that were pure and cleansed were allowed into the temple. And if you had any physical uh, disability or ailments, you were banned. You were not allowed into the Holy of Holies. So it was remarkable that Jesus' ministry was, a- was actually not in the temple where it demanded perfection, but actually outside where the imperfect resided. And so who Jesus touched, who Jesus healed, who Jesus interacted with over and over again were the imperfect, were those that had thorns in their flesh. Just a couple of examples. We have the woman with the flow of blood. For 12 years, she had this that made her unclean, unable to approach God, and Jesus healed her. But 12 years later, I would argue that that was a thorn in her flesh. Uh, Another person, we had the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 3, someone who was plagued emotionally, relationally. He lived by himself uh, among the tombs. Uh, No one could restrain him. He was naked. Everyone was afraid of him right? Uh, And that was who Jesus healed. Relational brokenness, relational thorns, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's going out to the well in the middle of the day rather than in the morning. Why? Because she has that kind of reputation in town, in the Samaritan town, because she's had five husbands, and the man that she's with currently is not her husband. So relationally scorned, Uh, outcasts. That's who Jesus consistently went to were those who were weak, those who struggled with thorns. Paul says that he responded to this thorn, this messenger of Satan, by asking three times for it to be taken away. Now, I want you to think about times in your life where you prayed, uh, maybe over and over again, not just three times, but maybe 10 times, maybe 50, maybe a hundred times you have prayed the same prayer, being desperate. And as I've interacted with uh, my non-Christian friends, uh, a lot of them remarkably have prayed at some point in their lives. Uh, And you have heard those stories of points of desperation that causes people who would have nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Jesus, end up praying For whatever power that there might be in order to appeal to a circumstance or a situation that they are so desperate that they are so unable to do anything about that they will reach out in their desperation to pray but I know we as Christians we have those kinds of prayers too if you've been living any length of time you have experienced desperation you have experienced circumstances where you needed saving where you needed Jesus to intervene and to take away this suffering, this thorn that's in your flesh. And Paul himself, someone who had such a radical transformation as we saw last week, he had many of those moments of desperate prayer too. And then we have sort of a litany of paradoxical statements that closes out this uh, passage this morning uh, where it says, God's grace is sufficient. That power is made perfect in weakness. Says Paul. Says I will boast all the more gladly in my not strengths, but in my weaknesses. And then finally, he makes a statement: When I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. I think most of us, uh, even in coming to church, we want to look strong. We want to look spiritually strong. We want to look put together. We want to look like um, life is going our way. And I understand that temptation. I understand that need or want or desire to look strong, to be affirmed by the world. As Leo is saying, to look cool, being able to dance at weddings, right? But the scriptures say that that's the wrong approach, that our worship to God actually is best served through our weaknesses rather than our strengths. That we are to boast in our weaknesses rather than our strengths. And the reason is because the point of our lives isn't to reflect how perfect and good we are, but our witness is to share about the gospel that restores the name of our church restoration assumes brokenness that needs to be fixed that needs to be restored so in our name we recognize that brokenness so our worship demands that we come with our weakness leading with our weakness yes god has given us strengths yes god has given us Uh, gifts and abilities, but our witness has to be, and our worship has to be, approaching God in our weakness, because that is when God is most glorified. I think because it's uh, Father's Day, I'm going to share sort of how this has played itself out in my life, um, because I just when I think about God's call on my life to be a minister, vocational minister, and now informally, um, I just marvel. I just, it is such a total unplanned and um, unpredictable turn of events in terms of my life that uh, it's an example of this passage of when I am weak, then I am strong. So Pastor Dan mentioned about Father's Day being a mixed bag for us. Uh, Many of us did grow up with really loving and caring fathers, and that provided a really good template for our view of God. And we understand God's love because our earthly fathers did a great job of loving us that way. And that uh, holds true as well for mothers and relationship with mothers too. But I grew up um, having a pretty strained relationship with my own father that my connection Uh, with my dad was not only hurt just by our own differences, but the fact that we grew up sort of in um, uh, the boonies in Ohio where there weren't other Asian people, there was things lost in translation and generationally because my expectation was that my dad would love me the way all of my Western friends' uh, dads were by hanging out with me, by throwing the a ball and playing catch, by coming to my sport events, right? That's, that's what I thought love meant because that's what I saw the other dads around me doing. But my father being really busy, working really hard, um, I just translated that inappropriately as, well, my dad must not love me not knowing that the Asian way of a dad showing love is provision, is to work really hard and to make sure that sons and daughters don't have any material lack or need. So there's a total cultural misunderstanding uh, that I feel like was one of the great tragedies of my life because I I interpreted that to mean that my dad didn't care about me. But on top of that, uh, even despite the, the cultural things, there was a host of other things that strained our relationship. And then when my parents got divorced and my father moved away, it sort of sealed the deal in terms of a lack of relationship with my father. And that really impacted my view of God. That that sort of created the template for how I viewed God. There was a long period of time where um, I grew up in the Catholic church um, and then when my parents got divorced when I was 11, we stopped going to church. But then I became a Christian through the ministry of young life at our high school at the age of 16. And, and it, was, it was a radical change in my life. I mean, I was going down a pretty dark path. But after I became a Christian, um, I was really enthusiastic. And I was like, man, my dad needs Jesus. And I want relationship with him. So I decided to go move and live with my dad. Because um, uh, up to that point, I'd been living with my mom along with my sisters. So I went out to LA and I lived with him and his, uh, my stepmom for a year, trying to convert him to become a believer. And you can imagine a, a, a brand new Christian, 16 year old, years old, loving the Lord and wanting uh, his dad to know Jesus, um, but it, it was terrible. It was like, <laughs> it, it just didn't go over very well. Um, and, and not only that though, in my attempts to connect with my father, I It just, I just realized we had so little in common, but one of the things we had in common, or, or, you know, it's sort of the Korean cultural drinking lifestyle, right? Um, And my dad loved to drink, so I, the only way that I found that he would talk or we would sort of talk to each other was when we were drinking together. So as a junior in high school, my dad and I would go to these Korean restaurants and just drink together, and, that was the only way that I found connection with my father. And I feel really mixed about this, right? Because uh, you should not really be drinking with your 17-year-old son, you know, and taking them to bars. But but it's sort of like I have sweet memories of that, you know, of my only connection with my dad. Um, but one of the things that happened was throughout these conversations that we were having, my attempts to really witness to him about Jesus, um, I think I just failed because I needed him to do something. I needed him to accept Jesus. And that is not the right motivation. And people know. (laughs) People know when you're approaching them because you want them to change. They sense that. They know that. And I really needed to learn what it meant to love my father, to really care for him regardless of what choices that he made. That, that experience was pretty bad even for me spiritually, so I felt pretty bad not only in failing to connect with my dad and having him not become a Christian, but also it was a pretty low point in my own life because I felt like a failure not only as, you know, um, as a son but also as a Christian because I had started drinking again and was doing all these bad things. Um, and it had gotten pretty bad uh, to the point where towards the end of my junior year, I was really... I was praying that God would would just make it end that the father that I wanted to have was only him in heaven and that I didn't want to wait to go to heaven to experience being a son. And one of the things that happened when I was praying over and over again for that thorn to be taken away, for that messenger of Satan to leave me alone, was that the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to change your name. I'm gonna give you a new name. I'm gonna change your name from resigned to encourager. Your name right now is resigned one but I'm gonna make you an encourager. And when I heard that in prayer, I laughed out of bitterness, like Sarah did when the angel told her she was gonna be pregnant in her old age. I just laughed because it just felt so impossible. It just felt so bad. Not only did I not have any wherewithal to get out of my own depression or to get out of my own discouragement, the thought that I would encourage other people just seems so impossible. It just seems so ridiculous. But I remembered that prayer. I remembered what the Holy Spirit said. And so I went back, finished out my senior year with my mom. Um, And there I got reconnected with um, my Young Life community and they helped me out a lot, reestablished my faith. But even throughout... college, when I I got involved with Young Life or InterVarsity in college, I just always felt on the periphery of, of the body of believers, right? Sort of a spectator sitting at the back, not really being active, always with that constant sense of, I don't really belong here. I'm not really put together like everyone else here. I still struggle with so many sins and temptations. My life is not what I see other people's lives being like. And something that happened, um, there was a prayer time that we had at a retreat. And one of the people there who was praying for me said that they saw a picture of me being born. And they were... Relaying that Jesus was in the birthroom with me, that when I was born, Jesus was delighted in me. That He was so thankful for me being born and being alive. And that, I think, that broke something inside of me that made me realize that I didn't have to die and go to heaven to receive a father's love for me, but that I could receive that here on earth. And because of that moment of healing prayer, I realized that I didn't have to come to Jesus put together. I didn't have to worship God put together, but it was actually within that brokenness of not knowing how to be loved, not knowing how to be accepted, that that's exactly what God wanted, that that's what it means to worship God, is to bring our weakness and our brokenness and our needs, our thorns, the things that we just pray over and over again for God to take away. That's exactly what we bring, because then Jesus is made strong. So coupled with not only just healing prayer and multiple times of healing prayer, but also at that time started professional counseling um, over the course of really a decade, 10 years. Um, just God did continual healing, just did continuous affirmations of his love for me and what it meant to be a son and what, what it meant for God to be my father. And it got to the place where... Um, I realized man i wanted all these things from my dad maybe he can't give that because he's never received that so at that point i started uh holy spirit encouraged me to start um interacting and and initiating with my dad so i just wrote letters to him every month i would write a letter send it off um, and you know that was sort of my worship and ministry to him was to tell him how, how proud of him that i was and how much i loved him Um, And to this day, I have no idea what he thought about those letters. I have no, you know, I I think maybe God ministered to him through that. I don't know. I'm not sure. But that was part of my worship. That was part of, I had gotten to the place where I, instead of me thinking about what I needed, I could finally consider maybe he needs something and was able to give that. And as I started full-time and vocational ministry God over and over again brought people to me who had the same story. That the people that God um, brought into my life to build a relationship with were others who had difficult relationships with their dads, who had difficulty understanding God's love for them as a father. And as much as I would love to focus on my strengths over and over again, um, the point of the Holy Spirit moving and working in radical ways has always been with the fatherless. And I realize that, of course, that's the case because I know what that feels like. I have compassion. I can't help but love people and want better things for people that went through the same thing that I did. So if you are wondering about where your ministry should be, I would argue it's your places of weakness, that it is your places that are messed up, places that you want to hide, that you shouldn't seek to do ministry where you are strong, but actually seek to do ministry where you struggle. And wouldn't the church be such a wonderful place where we are free to express our weaknesses to one another rather than our strengths. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, um, I think this morning I just am marveling again at how much you love us and how much you care about us and how we don't have to be afraid. Jesus, um, you know what all of these things feel like. You prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane for the cup of suffering to be taken away. And similarly, um, God's grace was sufficient and you were able to take on the sins of the world so that we could receive grace. Holy Spirit, just invite you to um, touch the places of our hearts that we are afraid to look at, to um, lift up our insecurities and our fears to you. And instead just... Worship you and to witness to others through our weaknesses rather than our strengths. And Lord Jesus, there are people here this morning that have been praying a long time for their thorns to be taken away. And I pray especially for those um, who are struggling with unanswered prayer. I do pray that your grace would be sufficient for them. I pray that the community would come around them would help them endure, would help them receive healing, would be able to uh, love them the way that you love. So thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.